Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1004. On this week's show, we begin with David Lorelo welcoming Jerry DePoto, president of baseball operations for the Seattle Mariners. We hear his thoughts on all the wild spending going on in free agency this offseason so far, and where the Mariners fit into that equation as a club seeking a sustainable winning model. We also hear about the team acquiring Teoscar Hernandez, as well as old Fangraphs friend Dave Cameron, who is now the senior director of player procurement for Seattle. DePoto also shares insights on players like Andres Munoz, Marco Gonzalez, Penn Murphy, and Emerson Hancock, as well as looking back at the kind of major league pitcher that Jerry DePoto used to be. And here is a, a question, Jerry, that you probably have never pondered before. Which pitcher on the Mariners roster is most similar to a 1990s reliever named Jerry DePoto? Wow. There's... I don't know if we really have one. <laughs> There's a, our guys are all you know strikeout artists for the most part, and you know I, I was more of a sinker slider guy in in an era where there were a ton of sinker slider guys. But I guess in today's world, who would that guy be? It might be Trevor Gott, who we just picked up as a as a free agent, you know, via Milwaukee a year ago, and you know I had Trevor traded for him once before, which is I'm sure a shock to everybody who's listening. Traded for Trevor back in my Angels days uh, from San Diego with Houston Street in a July deal in 2014, and we, we may have different physical stuff packages, but it's the same you know kind of arm side runs, sink down, you know hard slider. Uh, Trevor has recently started to throw uh, you know his his four seamer up, which is again something I started to do you know, maybe in 1997 or eight when I was, you know, 30, 31 years old, a similar time in my career. And the second half, Ben Clemens catches up with Eric Longenhagen after missing each other at the winter meetings. The pair talk about the signings of Kodai Senga and Masataka Yoshida, as well as other prospects from NPB and KBO and what challenges they could face adapting to the major leagues. Ben and Eric also consider where Dansby Swanson and Carlos Rodon may sign, as well as what the heck is going on with the Sean Murphy trade which, by all accounts, does not look like a good deal for Oakland. If that reported Cardinals package is true, then yeah, I would have rather had that than what's going on here. But again, like it just points to the gap between what I think about these players and what it seems like Oakland has to think about these guys to think that this deal was good is that they actually like Esturi Ruiz, whereas I, you know, do not. If you make him a top 25 prospect, then I think this deal makes sense. Yeah, well, definitely If you just, if you just like... Swap him out and swap in, I don't know, uh, I mean, I know all the Cardinals prospects best, so Jordan Walker. Then it's like, yeah, okay. But, I mean, I, uh, I, don't, I don't think he is. Yeah, Murphy's damn good. He's yeah. so good. I, I got some, like, Twitter flack and, like, et cetera. That people were like, you had Sean Murphy pretty high on your top 50 trade value list. And I was like, yeah. Right. <laughs> I remain confident in that valuation of him. He was actually better than I thought he'd be in 2022. But before we get to these excellent segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over and browse the Fangraphs.com shop. If you need last-minute gift ideas for the baseball fan in your life, could I suggest some official Fangraphs swag? And if you're in a time crunch, an ad-free Fangraphs membership does not need to be shipped and can be gifted instantaneously to someone you know that could use blazing fast browsing speeds at your favorite sabermetric research website. A Fangraphs membership is truly the best way to support everything we do here, from the podcast to the leaderboards to the many, many original research articles to just plain keeping the lights on. We couldn't do it without your help. Thank you. Enjoy the show.
Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Jerry DePoto, president of baseball operations for the Seattle Mariners. Jerry, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Glad to do it, David. So, Jerry, I think it is safe to say that this has been a pretty crazy last couple of weeks in baseball. There have been a lot of signings, a lot of huge contracts for upwards of, of 10 years. Are you surprised by the dollars and lengths of contracts that we're seeing? Uh, you know, I, I guess at this time of year, I'm always surprised by by what happens. And, you know, like I'm sure other organizations and, and the organizations I've been with in the past, you always try to do a crowdsource of what your expectations are of the upcoming markets. And, and uh, more often than not, because in baseball operations, we tend to err on the side of, of being aggressive. More often than not, we're in the right neighborhood. And, and I would say that this year, you know, we're probably in the right neighborhood in terms of AAVs, you know, if not even a little, you know, conservative, it, it, I would say the market has become. But, you know, the one thing we didn't have a, a good feel for was, was some of the, the contract lengths. And, you know, to the extent that every market is, is unique to itself and there are always going to be surprises, I guess that's the, the, you know, the surprise takeaway from this market. And it's probably made it a lot of fun for, for fans around the, the league to, to watch and see what these various teams are doing. And uh, I am on social media probably too much like uh, a lot of people are. And while I'm not heavily invested in, you know, quote unquote, Seattle Mariners buzz, I do get the impression that a lot of Mariners fans are thinking, why aren't we signing these guys? So what is your uh, you know, response to, to that? You know, first of all, because somebody else did <laughs> is my initial answer to that question. But you know, we checked in very early in the off season with all of the pending free agents, and and we always tend to do our business. You know, I guess first and foremost through the lens of scouting, development, sign, draft, and trade is 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 kind of how we we do it, and and we've always thought that way. And you know, why we prefer that route is we're we're constantly building a puzzle and. You know, through through the draft and trade sector of the the industry, you're able to open up just a, a wider universe of player to choose from, and and those players it could be based on talent, it could be based on age, it could be based on you know the the, the control years, it could be based on you know a, a variety of those factors, including salary and and how that player fits into your puzzle, and you know. Free agency has been part of what we do, but not in building the foundation of our team. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess we want to build the most sustainable winning program we can. And we think we have a better chance of doing that in our market the way we do it. And, and if, if a major free agent comes our way on what we think is the right length and the right deal, like Robbie Ray a year ago, then we'll do that. But you know, we, we haven't made that the foundation of, of what we do. And I do want to ask about uh, a few players, but first I want to ask about an acquisition you made that didn't cost, at least I assume it didn't cost, you know, Aaron Judge money or Carlos Correa money. And that was hiring uh, Dave Cameron to a full-time position. It did cost us a little closer to Aaron Judge money than you might think. <laughs> but I say that jokingly, Dave, as as you all know, I, Dave's brilliant. And, you know, having him around, his his balance 
in understanding the intersection between traditional player evaluation and the analytic view of a player is pretty unique. You know, there, there are not a lot of people I've run across in baseball that can straddle that line the way that Dave does. And and I don't know if that was true of Dave, you know, when, when back in the, the, the fledgling days of, of fan graphs or, or his presence in the, 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 the blogosphere. But I do know that the version of Dave that we have today, he can, he can really break down a player. He brings a player to life through written word like very few people I've encountered and you can never really pick which side of the line he's going to fall on with it, with a player. It, it could be, you know, something that is driven by performance analytics. It could be something that is driven by what we'll call it, you know, biofeedback. And it could be something that's just driven by traditional player evaluation, like scouting feel. And, uh, I think the, it's obvious that through the years and through the different exposures he's had, uh, he's picked up a skill set that we feel like makes him a great advantage in player procurement. And there are a lot of different roles in, in any front office. Dave's title, I believe, is Senior Director of Player Procurement. What exactly does that role entail? You know, it's pretty wide in what it encompasses. And, you know, Dave, this past year serving as a consultant for us in that same space, you know, Dave did everything from, you know, sit in on, on trade discussions and and provide suggested avenues to, to player acquisition dating back to, you know, really last off season, but definitely into the spring, you know, when we came out of the lockout. We made the deal with the Reds that brought us Gino Suarez and Jesse Winker. You know, Dave was central to those discussions. He was central to, you know, the discussions that, that ultimately landed us Luis Castillo at the trade deadline. Uh, he was also a pivotal part of our draft room uh, strategy and and the discussion on lining up our board, which lasted, you know, something in the neighborhood of three weeks uh, here in Seattle. And, and Dave was present for all of that. So, He's really anywhere that you can can procure players, and that that could be the international space. It could be you know major league free agents. It could be trades with thirty teams. It could be the the professional leagues in Taiwan and Japan and the like. Dave has a take or or a, a natural feel to provide an evaluation or an expectation of a player regardless of the market they come from. And and again, that's a pretty unique skill set. I don't think there are a lot of people in the industry that can check all those boxes. The Castillo deal was, of course, pretty notable, not only that you made the trade, but also that you then signed him to a five-year extension. I don't have the numbers written down, but I believe it was over $100 million. So a lot of the fans who might be saying, why aren't you know the Mariners paying for players? I think you certainly are doing that. Yeah. And, you know, it's something I've actually tried to convey here in our local media markets, especially with, you know, in various local radio shows and and some of our own, uh, I guess, media or PR information releases. We have we've been very aggressive in how we've spent, particularly in the last year and a half. And, you know, when this offseason began, I think there were only two teams in Major League Baseball who had more future commitments beyond the 2023 season than we did. And, you know, obviously this has been a pretty interesting two, three week stretch and we've been knocked down that list a bit, <laughs> but 
we have, you know, over the course of the last year and a half, we've, we made about a half a billion dollars in commitments to players like Julio Rodriguez and Luis Castillo, as you mentioned, you know, one free agent in there in Robbie Ray, JP Crawford, Marco Gonzalez, and Marco Giss, I came slightly before that, Andres Munoz. And one of the things that we've discussed throughout in trying to build a sustainable winner here is being aggressive in locking up our own players and and building a, a foundation that we could grow with. And you know, we've tended to do that with players who are you know in the early stages of their careers or you know what we call the the front ends of their prime, and and trying to to make sure that. You know that that their prime years, if not in the case of a Julio Rodriguez, all their years uh, could potentially be spent here in Seattle and build not only a familiarity with with our fan base that this is what we are, this is who our team is, but in in starting to build you know cultural, uh, I, I guess strength and this is what the Mariners are about, and and we do really feel like so many of the guys I just mentioned embody that and. You know, and that's important to us. We know that we've long said here, you know, myself, Justin Hollander, Andy McKay, Scott Service, the those that have been a part of this for, for many years. You know, if if 30 baseball teams show up and they all do it the same way and they evaluate players the same way, they trade for players or sign free agents in the same way. And at the end of the day, the team with the most money is probably going to win. And and we don't really think that's how it works. We, we think that you have to find your unique advantage or your niche in the in the market and go out and attack that thing and and find your your advantage there and, and create separation. Uh, and and I, I think we've we've found a way that is comfortable for us and. You know, the last couple of years, we've had a really fun team to watch that we think is growth oriented and sustainable. When uh, Heim Bloom and Brian O'Halloran met uh, the media in uh, in the Red Sox suite during the winter meetings, I was there for one of those sessions, and I was a little surprised when Heim Bloom actually gave a number. I think he said seven or eight, which is the number of players that they would anticipate picking up you know, acquiring this offseason, be it trades or, or free agent. You know, you've traded for Colton Wong and Teoscar Hernandez. There have been a few other small deals. But could you give a ballpark number of additional trades or signings that you might make? Yeah, one or two. is uh, is, and, and I think that's consistent with what we talked about through going into this offseason, is we, is we wanted to add impact and we wanted to create length to our lineup. And you know, we feel like the impact comes from Teoscar Hernandez, and it's it, he fits us perfectly. It's it's a power bat. He makes it, he makes hard contact, and he has consistently done that at an elite level for a number of years. And you know, we feel like he's right in the middle of the best years of his career, and and uh, should fit us quite well. And and we believe that that will fit us quite well from a personality standpoint as well. And then with Colton, you know, his doesn't come, his impact doesn't come by way of one loud tool. It comes with a well-balanced game that covers what we think is the the gamut. You know, he's he is a rangy defender at second base who, while last year the defensive metrics, you know, weren't kind overall, you know, they we still see significant range advantage. And we were able to work with Colton or talk with Colton about, you know, a, a 
an issue that may have been drawn from a core problem he was experiencing throughout the season that affected his hand positioning that we think is an easy solve. And this has been one of the, the best defensive players at any position in the league for most of the last you know half dozen years. And he consistently gets better with the bat, particularly versus right-handed pitching. And and you know the combination of a patient hitter who has learned how to lift the ball and, and has has made more I, I guess hard contact in recent years, in combination with a player we already have on our roster, you know Dylan Moore, who does those same things against left-hand pitchers and plays an exceptional defensive second base. We thought together the two of them were as appealing as anything else that we could go out and do on the market. And you know, adding Teoscar and and Colton to a lineup that we already thought was you know sneakily better than people give it credit for being. <laughs> I know our our general run scoring wasn't a huge advantage, but in most other offensive metrics, not called batting average, we actually you know we we show up pretty well. You know, we're average to above in so many of the other categories. And part of the way you get more runs across the board is just add more good offensive players to the lineup. And we didn't go in with the intent to be, you know, that to make the big splash that wowed people. We just wanted to consistently add players that we thought could make us a more threatening and well-balanced team. You mentioned uh, Andres Munoz a few minutes ago. I know he came over from the Padres uh, as part of a multiplayer deal. Uh, I think it was two years ago. What do you remember about your reports on Munoz? You know, from the time he was in the minor leagues, and we share a spring training complex with the pods, so we got to see Andres quite a bit, you know, in the backfields. And it's just an electric arm. But, you know, you never quite know. Uh, there's command would come and go, and consistency with his second pitch would come and go. But he was so young. Even when he first ascended to the big leagues, he was – and today, he's still one of our youngest players. <laughs> and you, know, you feel like he's been around forever because of how good he quickly became. But uh, he played this year at 23 years old. And as, uh, you know, his, his ascent to the big leagues was so fast. It was almost always about his fastball velocity. And when he came over and, and went through the tail end of his rehab, you know, I think part of the reason we were able to get him included in the Padres trade back in the summer of 2020 was simply that he was coming off of, you know, major surgery and nobody knew what it might look like coming out on the other end. But, you know, we, we took a little bit of a gamble and, you know, we've, we've been repaid for that many fold. He, he's first, First and foremost, just an awesome guy and fits in perfectly in our clubhouse. He he works. He wants to get better. And our pitching coaches and strategists sat down with Mooney, you know, when he first got into his throwing program coming off of Tommy John and, and talked to him about some of what we wanted to try to achieve with, you know, the, the shape and direction of his fastball and the shape and direction of his slider. And and I think the result of that was it, it really played out. And if there was ever a case of, you know, the right player at the right time with the right group in front of the right opportunity, it was Andres. And it's not just about fastball velocity. It's about, you know, an increased level of fastball usability. You know, he threw hard, but it wasn't, you know, dynamic fastball action in any way. And some of the way you could you could help that was in the locations that you tried to throw to. 
uh, first and foremost. And then with the increased performance of his slider, which you know, this year became one of the single best pitches in baseball. And and I don't know, even from a scouting perspective, if we had that when we acquired Mooney. That was solely a creation of, of, of Andres working with our pitching coaches and strategists and, and creating what became just a dominant out pitch. And you know, he's always going to strike guys out because he throws 100 miles an hour. But doing it with the slider, he's doing it with makes him you know a force at the back of our bullpen. A pitcher who profiles uh, differently is uh, is Penn Murphy, who to a lot of people really came out of nowhere this year. I believe he was a like a twenty eighteen draft pick, but he was a thirty third round guy. At what point, Jerry, did Penn Murphy emerge on your radar? You know, basically go from a name in the organizational depth chart to a pitcher that you know that you were talking about a lot with your developmental people. Penn's always been a pretty good performer, to to better than pretty good. And, you know, our, our player development group, our coaches, you always love guys like Penn Murphy. It's great makeup. He shows up every day. He makes his teammates better. He's got leadership qualities. And he was always a little bit older for each level. And the, the groups that he was with, both because of his personality and his, his overall presentation. Penn's really sharp guy who speaks well. Uh, he connects with others on a pretty consistent basis. You know, he always performed, and I think when he got with Alone Leitchman, who is Alone, was in our organization from 2016 uh, through just a couple of weeks ago when he left us to become the assistant pitching coach for the Cincinnati Reds. We were in spring training 2021, and. You know, we're sitting around in the coach's room in Peoria, like you do after long workouts and, and guys are having, you know, sitting back and, and pouring some cold water on their head and having some conversation about what they saw that day. And, and I, I vividly recall this was the first time that, that, that we ever really brought up Penn as a potential addition to our major league club. He was in spring training at, on an invite with the, the major league club. And everybody's talking about George Kirby or Logan Gilbert or, you know, some of the, the, the really grab your attention arms that were in camp with us at the time. And, and alone raised his hand and he said, you know, who might, was my takeaway today. Don't sleep on Penn Murphy. I'm telling you that, that cutter he's come up with is just changing his, his whole game. He's going to be a guy. And, and then alone had him in AAA in Tacoma and, and sure enough, you know, Murph just continued to to draw that that kind of glove side up and away fastball and, and brought that cutter just off of it and and led to a little bit more sweep with his slider. And and this year, if I, I can't even tell you where we would be with, without his breakout, particularly in, in kind of mid-May to, to early July, when our bullpen was just starting to catch its groove. Penn Murphy was like the, among the most reliable guys that we had encountered all year long. And, and then again, you need Penn Murphy's to step up and jump out if you're going to do special things. And, and he did for us. And here is a, a question, Jerry, that you probably have never pondered before. Which pitcher on the Mariners roster is most similar to a 1990s reliever named Jerry DePoto? Wow. There's... I don't know if we really have one. <laughs> There's our guys are all you know strikeout artists for the most part, and 
You know, I, I was more of a sinker slider guy in, in an era where there were a ton of sinker slider guys. But I guess in today's world, who would that guy be? Might be Trevor Gott, who we just picked up as a as a free agent, you know, via Milwaukee a year ago. And, you know, I had Trevor traded for him once before, which is, I'm sure, a shock to everybody who's listening. Traded for Trevor back in my Angels days uh, from San Diego with Houston Street in a July deal in 2014. And we, we may have different physical stuff packages, but it's the same, you know, kind of arm side runs, sink down, you know, hard slider. Uh, Trevor has recently started to throw, uh, you know, his his four seamer up, which is, again, something I started to do, you know, maybe in 1997 or eight when I was, you know, 30, 31 years old, uh, similar time in my career, but similar stuff profiles and and how we do it. And I, I'll always have a, a special like for players like that, but I will say, or pitchers like that, I will say that that one of the things I try to urge against with our coaches or, or staff members is don't try too hard to find yourself because you will find yourself and there's probably a good reason why you shouldn't be looking for that. <laughs> so, it's, uh, you know, we're all it, the Matt Brashes and the Andres Munoz and the Paul Seawalds, you know, it's a, uh, they, these guys have changed our lives in what they can do to dominate the back end of a game. You know, I, I, I do think that the sinker is coming back around and we'll see more of that in the years to come. But, you know, in recent years, there's been a little bit of a, a Darth there and the Trevor Gotts of the world stand out as, as being unique in that way. I think some listeners, Jerry, may not be aware that you pitched quite a bit. Um, I looked it up, uh, 390 big league appearances. That had me curious where that ranks all time. It's uh, tied for 803rd most in history. Not that notable, but I thought it was kind of interesting that of the seven other pitchers with the same number of appearances include Hippo Vaughn and Rip Sewell. So I'm going to put you on the spot and see if you can tell me anything about either Hippo Vaughn or Rip Sewell. But they were both pitching in the age of black and white baseball cards. That I can tell you for certain. You know, Rip Sewell was his brother, Joe, I think became a Hall of Famer by way of dominating the strike zone, unlike anybody else ever did. I think Rip Sewell, in addition to pitching a lot, also ranks among the all-time home run hitters for uh, – for pitchers, if if memory serves correct, and both guys were in their time. I think both guys were excellent starting pitchers. Who, in especially in Rip Sewell's case, he was pitching during an era where you know, that wasn't always represented in you know, raw stat line, and, and I, I guess it was a more offensive era. Whereas Hippo Vaughn, I think, was more in the the dead ball era and made a lot of his hay. You know when. Uh, when Babe Ruth could still pitch. Now, right, uh, Sewell is most famous, I believe, for the EFAS pitch, throwing one to Ted Williams in the All-Star game. You know, Hippo Vaughn, 20-game winner, numerous times for the Cubs. And I actually did not know this until I did a little research this morning. But he and Fred Tony of the Reds pitched the only dual no-hitters through nine innings game in big league history in 1917. Hippo Vaughn finally gave up uh, two hits and a run in the 10th inning. And the only run was driven in by the immortal Jim Thorpe, which I think is pretty cool. 
That is cool. And I I do now that you mention it, I, I won't say I remember the game, but I do remember that the event occurred mostly because I think there was a I was a big baseball card collector and there was a baseball card in like a 1961 scoops version where they did, you know, they celebrated big, big moments or, or fantastic games in history. And that was one of them. And this is a question that I'm not sure that you can address, but the Mets recently signed Kode Senga. How does he compare as a pitcher to Roki Sasaki and Yoshi Yamamoto, who are considered the two best pitchers in NPB? Yeah, I really can't compare the three of them, largely because I, I can't say I've watched any of them enough to know. I, I have watched Senga enough to know simply because, we, you know, Kodai was a free agent. He was coming in. Uh, we did sit down and meet with him. And, and you're going to familiarize yourself with his body of work. We had also been preparing for a year for, for this to come. So having seen a, a good deal of footage of, of Senga, and, and having actually seen him pitch live once uh, against Otani when I was over in Japan uh, the year before Shohei came to the U.S. So I'm, I'm very familiar with Kodai Senga. I can't say I am, I, I am expert enough in either of the other two, including Sasaki, who I watched more than, than a little bit, to compare the three. But uh, I do know that, that Kodai Senga is going to comfortably sit in the upper 90s, hold velocity that will occasionally touch triple digits, and his split finger is a true out pitch. I mean, it's a it's top of the scales type of pitch, and and I don't care where you're scouting. It just it misses a ton of bats. So uh, it's the he has the the ability to go out and make real impact, and and I I'm glad he'll be doing it in the National League if he's not going to be doing it in Seattle. And this is more of a theoretical question than anything, but if either uh, Yamamoto or Sasaki, whichever one you might prefer best or your scouts prefer best, if they were to become available and Munitaka Mirakami was also available, which do you think most big league uh, GMs would most most covet, the pitcher or the hitter coming out of uh, Japan? Well, tough one. I I, I don't really... Every team is probably going to have a different take on that. I, I, I do think that there have been enough instances of success with Japanese pitchers who are transitioning over, particularly Japanese pitchers who transition over with a dominant split finger. And that, and that could be Senga, it could be Yu Darvish or Hideo Nomo, it could be Shohei Otani. There's, you know, it, it could be Kaz Sasaki who did that here for the Mariners back in the day. There's th- those pitchers, you know, with that common trait have been very successful here in in the United States, but every pitcher is a little bit different. It's probably about how his fastball works. And, you know, and with the hitters, I think there's been, there has been more than enough success experienced by a number of Japanese hitters transitioning over in recent years. Uh, You know, and this dates back to Ichiro and, and Hideki Matsui. There's, I, Whatever you need is is probably the answer to the question. You know, if if you're looking for a bat, then you're probably going to favor the bat. But I, I think 30 teams are, are constantly looking at the the markets around the world to find the best players they can find. And maybe outside of our own league, the, the next place they will look is in the MPB. <laughs> they, they, they have some of the best players in the world who were, you know, in the last 25 years only become more familiar with than uh, – than we were before that. 
For sure. And we are running short on time, Jerry, but I want to hit you with a few more quick ones. When we talked at the GM meetings, I asked you about uh, George Kirby, and uh, he was your 2019 first round pick. Where developmentally is your 2020 first round draft pick, Emerson Hancock? You know, Emerson obviously spent last year in in AA at Arkansas, and he does it a little bit differently than George does. And Emerson, you know, like we talked about in that sinker slider category, that's Emerson Hancock. He is, it's a power sinker in the the mid to upper 90s. He's got a a slider that's got a short little tilt and he can throw it for a strike. He's got a changeup that he probably doesn't use as, as, as often because he didn't have to in his career, just like George uh, when he was coming through college, and he's just now getting comfortable with more of the three-pitch mix. Emerson was set back as much as anybody with the short 2020 season and and only throwing a handful of games at Georgia before being drafted. And then the, the full miss of the rest of that summer came back in 2021. And as we started to ramp up his innings, you know, we, we ran into, I guess, workload issues and in, in trying to, to manage that with Emerson. We've since been able to resolve it. He pitched most of the year last year uh, and, and got his innings, which we thought was the most critical part of his development. He's got real major league stuff. He has a real starting pitcher's delivery. You know, we feel like we got over a big hump last year. And he is, a to me, one of the real breakout candidates in our system as we head into this year. He's now confident in where he is in, in terms of his his preparedness to carry the innings and early on in his time with the Mariners. And this is, you know, on us as an organization, you know, we tried to make too many adjustments with his physical stuff, as opposed to just letting him to do the thing that he does well. And, and I'll be critical of that. We've done a better job in the last year and a half or so with Emerson in understanding that there are different ways to go out and be dominant as a starting pitcher and you know we talked about it earlier with the sinker coming back around for so long in baseball you know about a decade we'd gotten away from teaching the sinker or using it as an advantage and and then we drafted Emerson Hancock who is you know primarily a sinker slider type of guy and asked him to do something else as his primary attack in in four seamers up top and it just didn't really click with him and and since we've allowed him to to go back to doing the things that he does he is starting to show us what we the, the appeal that we saw in him all along so really looking forward to see what he'll do this year so Emerson Hancock is up and coming. Marco Gonzalez is a pitcher who has been in the Mariners rotation for five or six years, and he was not always at his best this season. What, if anything, does he need to do to turn himself back into the best version of Marco Gonzalez? I think Marco knows this, and we've talked about it. You know, Marco's never been a guy that was going to overwhelm you with physical stuff. He was always a guy that was going to be based on disrupting timing and and making pinpoint locations. And you know, in 2018, 2019, and and most especially in the shortened 2020 season, you know, he was one of the best. You know, back and forth, add and subtract, locate pitchers in our league, and. You know, there are pitchers like that in various forms, you know, ranging from Hall of Famers like a Tom Glavin, you know, to to guys who pitched more recently like a a Mark Burley. 
who can be very dominant. And for those three seasons, Marco was absolutely nailing it in terms of locations. And, you know, we don't think Marco's going to throw five miles an hour harder. We don't expect him to add, you know, X number of, of, you know, RPM to his breaking ball spin. Marco just has to locate the way he's capable of locating. And, And I think last year was was not representative of what he's capable of in, in that category. Uh, 2020, he was one of the best command pitchers you'll ever see. He, just, he could dot any pitch that he wanted to throw in any count. And and last year, he became reliant on the back and forth as opposed to the location. And, and I think that's going to be a focus for him as we go into spring training this year. Okay, uh, two more questions. This one is a bit of a change of pace. You scouted for the Red Sox in 2003 and 2004. Does anything stand out from those two years in terms of players that you had a role in the Red Sox acquiring or maybe pursuing but not acquiring? Yeah, I I mean, there were a lot of things that stand out to me in those years. And and I think as we build out our teams now, one of the things that, that really jumps at me the most is where you can find value. You know, if you remember in 2003 or going into 2003, you know, Bill Miller was not a a household name. David Ortiz had just been, you know, non-tendered by the Minnesota Twins. Kevin Millar was a waiver claim who was, you know, in the process of of making his way to to Japan to go play in in Asia. You can find so much value in in looking through a different lens. And, And I think in the 20 years since, that's something that that a number of teams, some of whom have been led by Theo and and others from that group, have really focused on finding the value in non-traditional places, and and uh, you know that really jumps out at me from from that era, and you know others were just the 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 way that team's personality came together is be respectful of of not disrupting that personality you know from you know there are players we acquired that I was you know part of in terms of the evaluation or or recommending suggesting that player but there there's in in any organization there are so many scouts that contribute to to building a roster, I'd hate to make it about one or two players, but more about the theme of what we were doing, which was going out and identifying the the talent or the potential for impact that existed in non-traditional places, and then and then maximizing that outcome, which is what I do think that era of Red Sox baseball really was about. Let's go, Jerry, back to your playing career for for the last one here. You pitched against the Mariners uh, 10 or 11 times, which means that you faced Edgar Martinez and Ken Griffey Jr. multiple times each. What do you remember about those matchups? Uh, you know, I th- and I had the benefit, too, of playing with Edgar in winter ball one year down in San Juan uh, in the, the Puerto Rican Winter League. Uh, what I remember is that their lineup never stopped coming. And, you know, at the time when I first encountered the, the Mariners, I was playing with an Indians team and we had a lineup that never stopped coming. And and, and I thought that the Mariners in, in our league at that time it had the deepest lineup that we faced. And, you know, you got down into the seven, eight, and nine, and 
it was not your traditional seven eight nine look. It was it was a threatening power hitter. It seemed around every corner, you know. And and I remember this, you know, Joe Boringer, who I worked with for many years, at, with you know, starting with the Diamondbacks, and then you know here with Seattle, and and who's now working as a consultant with the Tigers. Uh, Joe, at, at one point, and this is four or five years ago, actually it was 2016 when Junior was going into the Hall of Fame. He said to me, hey, did you ever face Junior? I said, yeah, yeah, I did, actually. And, and he said, how'd that go for you? And I said, you know, I don't think it was too bad. And then Joe pulled the numbers and it was like an 1100 OPS. And I said, <laughs> I feel like I held him in check, all things being equal, you know, because, you know, at, th- at that time with Edgar, with Junior, with Jay Buhner, you know, that those types of, of hitters in the league, y- you got up to, to, to face them in those moments. And, you know, I can remember striking Ken Griffey Jr. out and, and always remembering the, the sensation of striking him out. I, I've kind of shut out the the walks and the rockets and just focus on the good thing. Yeah, small small sample sizes though, Jerry. I think it was three for seven with a couple of walks against Griffey, and I think Edgar. It looks like just one for three with three walks. So so you pitched him pretty carefully. Yeah, Edgar. I remember Edgar you know, facing Edgar with two runners on, and it was actually one of my first high leverage opportunities. Uh, as a young pitcher with the Indians and thinking this was a better outcome for me, you know, I'll just jam them up inside. And, you know, what I didn't realize at that time, and, and, and I don't know if anybody truly appreciated in the moment was Edgar's, you know, propensity for swinging at the right pitch and just taking the ball. It's a, uh, it, it's not something that, that players actively talked about at that time. And, and he was, perhaps the best strike zone manager uh, of his era. And that's saying a lot because there were some awesome hitters in that era. But it really magnified the benefit of, of just damage zone, just living in your damage zone. And, and Edgar, you think you're going to jam him up inside, and that's the ball he just stays inside and rockets to right center field. And, and you're waiting for him to roll over that double play ball with two runners on, and instead you wind up with a line drive to right center, and you're, you're kind of hosed. <laughs> but it's a, his, his approach to hitting really is it's, if you sit down and you talk to Edgar today, and, and he's, he's one of the most knowledgeable people you'll ever talk to about hitting it's a he was well ahead of his time in the way he understood it and and he can still talk about it today in in that same way i actually do have one last question jerry um i'm recalling that um your son jonah pitches in the royal system how does he compare to uh his dad as a pitcher now there there you might get close to similar. He, he's, uh, he, he throws a little bit harder, you know, and, and that's a new development, you know, and, and kudos to, to Kyle body and the people at driveline. Uh, you know, my son left college and, and in between his, his draft and the 2021 season, you know, he too, like so many young guys were not able to play in 2020. And, uh, after having a really nice opening salvo in 2019 in short season, he went up and visited the the group at driveline and and the result for him was you know an increased fastball you know his his, his average fastball went from you know 91 and change to to about close to 94 now he'll touch it into the 96 97 range he's got sink and run on his arm side and his his big thing has always been he's got an out pitch slider and and it's resulted in a very high strikeout percentage and and until very recently, he's 
he's had to work at corralling it and better commanding uh, his pitches. I think he got over a little bit of a hump in this year's Arizona Fall League. And, you know, you, you go in and you catch him at the at the right time and you think he looks like a big leaguer. But similar stuff in, in how it works and moves at, at what I would call a more modern velocity. <laughs> and how many times have you uh, spoken to Dayton Moore and more recently J.J. Piccolo with the idea of maybe acquiring a young pitcher from the Royals? You know, I said it once jokingly, but uh, there's and, and and Jonah knew this as he was going into his draft year. I, I, there are 29 teams that that uh, that you can go play for. One of them won't be the Mariners, and you know, I think there's the the pressure that exists for you know sons of former major leaguers or people who do you know what what Dayton and I do now or have done is is enough I, to, to put them in the organization that you work with and and helped craft you know the decision making process for is very unfair to the young player because regardless of whether you are biased or, or show a favoritism you probably will if you if you don't know it already but more importantly the other players in the in the organization or even coaches around the organization are probably going to look at things through a different lens and and be intimidated by that player or your son's existence so it's it's best that he pitch elsewhere and and one day i hope he gets to pitch uh, against us you know when we're in Kansas City visiting the Royals, and 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 I hope on that day we beat them. <laughs> so you, Jerry, are not only a good executive; you are a thoughtful father, and there's uh, probably a more valuable uh, quality to have. Nah, he's I'm proud of him. He's done well with, with with what he has. Super. Hey, we are well over time, Jerry. So uh, let me thank you once again for uh, being a guest on Fangrass Audio. You got it, David. And uh, thanks everybody for listening to Fangrass Audio. Hey, I'm Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by Eric Longenhagen for another segment of Fangraphs Audio. Hey, Eric. Howdy, Ben. What's going on? Not much, man. I missed you at the winter meetings, but I'm glad to hear you're doing well again, and I'm happy to talk some baseball with you. I missed everyone at the winter meetings. Uh, you know, we haven't had one in a couple years, and San Diego especially, just because of my familiarity with it, and where you know we tend to eat when the, the group of us is there. So yeah, it was a bummer to miss it, but what are you going to do? Catching flu from family at, at Thanksgiving? Or at least in the airport coming home from PA, uh, uh, yeah, it's, was, uh, uh, it was pretty nasty, bro. I was up to my fever was up to 103 at one point. Whew. that's uh, it's good for fastballs, bad for fevers. Yes. Oh yeah, man. It was. Uh, it's the sickest I've been in a long time. Like since I had swine flu, I want to say. And so yeah, like it was nasty, and I miss everybody. Man, I don't. Know. That sounds bad too. <laughs> oh, it was bad. <laughs> swine flu. Jeez. Swine well, flu. Yep. We'll have to do it next <laughs> my year. My whole family. Ugh. Yeah, man, my my nuclear family all had swine flu at the same time. It was gnarly. That was many years ago, but yeah. So, what's been going on? You've been uh, have you been enjoying anything in particular about the baseball offseason? You've been watching the World Cup or anything like that? Oh, I've been watching so much World Cup. Like, I just just can't get enough of it. I love that it only comes around once every four years because I don't know anything about soccer, and I I like pretending that I do. But if I had to do it for longer than two weeks, or you know, the better part of a month, but a lot of those times, there's not that many games. I think I'd be found out as a complete charlatan. But for a month, it's really fun to have opinions. It is like the Olympics where you immerse yourself in these otherwise obscure, you know, in terms of popular culture, like sports, uh, or, you know, that aren't, don't make up a huge part of, of your sport watching experience. And, and all of a sudden, you, like, know about figure skating and curling. Yeah, exactly. 
I've been watching a little bit of the World Cup stuff. I'm not a huge soccer guy in general, just because the the penalty kick stuff, like oh both my God, during it's so bad. So it's you so know, bad. I just think that there's an outsized portion of the outcome that relies on referee subjectivity, and that there are times when like almost like given a power play in hockey, like a team should get like four consecutive corner kicks or something like that, rather than like a PK. Like there are ways to do it that. I think it would be better, but that's my that's my main my main soccer drag. But I gotta tell you, like the Mbappe guy with France and Messi both, when like the ball is at their feet, they explode off the screen. Even to like a novice viewer like me, those guys seem way different than everybody else in terms of the way the ball is just sort of stuck to them and under their control. So I'm excited yeah. once we get done recording here to to throw that France semifinal game on to watch that. Oh, same. Kylian Mbappe. I can't wait. And World Baseball Classic is going to feel like that, I, th- I think. I mean, we know a little too much to have the same, uh, oh, just dropping in. This is cool. Never heard of the Shohei Otani guy, but uh, I'm pretty excited for that as well. I also love just like the, the acceptability of extreme national pride in these contexts. Like, I'd feel pretty gross doing it if it weren't the Olympics or the World Cup or something. But as long as that's on, like, all bets are off and I can just go crazy. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting how it's sort of the context allows allows for it in a way that, yeah, like you can embrace a little bit more. It is weird, you know, for me when you're playing like Iran and stuff, it's like, oh, this is kind of weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's me, though. But again, like it's not like a if it were another sport, perhaps that, you know, there'd be an override for me around some of that stuff. But it's, you know, soccer for me is just like, yeah, like I like that the Pulisic guy is from – you know, arguably USA's best player. He's you know, he's a PA kid. So I, knew it. I was into I didn't that. know it, but once you said I like that he's from, I was sure where this was going. He's from Hershey, where apparently the property values are high because it smells like chocolate when it rains. Ooh. Although I'm not sure that that's true anymore. Maybe at one point when chocolate was being made there, it was true. But yeah, the WBC stuff in March will be exciting. Pool C, which includes Team USA, is here in Arizona. Uh, some of the other like interesting middle-tier groups like Canada, Colombia, Great Britain, uh, they're also in in Pool C. So they'll have some interesting prospects, especially the Colombian the Colombian team that won a lot of the young guys who won the uh, Caribbean series for the first time in that, that country's history last offseason are probably going to be on that team. So that's that's a pretty exciting group with the um, the four brackets are in Phoenix, Miami, Tokyo, and uh, in Taiwan. And so, like, it's all over. It's all over the place. You know, the the pool play for the WBC before things co- start congregating in Miami in uh, in mid to late March. So it's uh it's gonna be a good time, I think. Yeah. And hopefully, there will be enough interest around around that to make that part of spring training like very interesting to people. Yeah. Hey, speaking of the World Baseball Classic, uh, we got some international players to talk about today. Yeah. So I've been working on for the last while, and they've started to roll out. Uh, publication-wise at the site are uh, international players, both the amateurs who are going to sign about a month from now in January. Most of those guys coming from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela with, you know, Colombia, Mexico, and and Korea, some other places sort of sprinkled in. And then the other group that I tend to do a sweeping update of as we get into the start of a list cycle in the offseason is pro players in Asia and the KBO and MPB mostly. Uh, I'll do a little comb over the the CBPL or the CPBL, excuse me, as well. But yeah, the the group of guys in Japan and in Korea uh, are especially important because it's the group at the very, very top 
player-wise, is like abnormally strong right now. We just had two guys sign for a lot of money. Kodai Senga, who was basically a true free agent for about $75 million. There's, you know, five years. There's an opt-out after the third year. And then the surprising one, considering that he wasn't on our top 50 free agents, yeah. was Oops. Masataka Yoshida, who from the Oryx Buffaloes, little 5, 875-pound guy, uh, who's been one of the better hitters in Japan the last handful of years, you know, signed with Boston for what amounted to $100 million when you factor in his contract and the 15 ish million dollar posting fee that the Red Sox paid to sign him. So you and I talked a lot about not just uh, Senga, but Shintaro Fujinami, who's a reliever who's yeah. poised to come over a six, six guy who throws really hard, kind of messy, but probably a big league bullpen piece when all is said and done. We talked a lot about him and, and Senga as we were leading up to the top 50 free agents and not necessarily Yoshida who was on the board for over a year, but like towards the bottom as like, hey, this guy's hit tool is insane. And that's sort of it. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious if you, what your thoughts were upon hearing that. And if you've done any review of, of that player from your point of view, what sort of your postmortem thoughts are on that deal? Yeah, it still confuses me. And I'm willing to be wrong. But I feel like if you told me, what if you could get Luis Arias, but with worse defense somehow? And like less flexible defense and maybe not as much extra base power. I, I just don't quite get it, if I'm being honest. Yeah, it's um like I'm happy I'm happy to be wrong. I just huh. They're basically he's basically being paid like a two war annual guy in a vacuum. Which means like yeah. among this is a left field only defender. Not not because he's super slow, but because he's got like a three arm. So in Boston, there are things about that that like maybe there it won't be so bad like it's like Johnny Damon playing out there kind of defensively and so yeah you know this guy can hit watching him swing the bat which folks can go to the international player tab over on the board and there's a little video link to like his highlights from the 2022 season um from the like Pacific League YouTube channel uh, so you can see what it looks like when this guy swings the bat and even though he's little it is special looking like the amount of barrel control he has and the rotational verve at his size it is pretty impressive and you can see how even though there's not a, a huge amount of raw power there he might get to some power he's like so uphill through certain parts of the zone because he's so little in a way that like does look like Juan Soto like this guy can get on top of fastballs up and in with lift because of the way his swing works but and you can click on the clipboard on the international player page on the on the board too and see a full scouting report from this guy and I go into some of this there but when you're using synergy to break this guy down in a little bit more granular fashion there are parts of the zone you can work him where like there's no power at all like soft stuff down and away from this guy he just sort of tries to slap the other way yeah and when you start to tailor your sample to only hard fastballs his numbers start to come down they are still not bad and he's still making a ton of contact relative to how much he's swinging and missing it's like a five to one ratio even when you start to isolate like fastballs 93 and above, 94 and above, 95 and above, it's really encouraging, but the slug portion 
starts to go way, way down. Yeah. When you start to look at the, the really hard, big league quality types of fastballs that he's facing. And so, you know, when you're looking at the big league comparable guys and you're looking at like Andrew Benintendi and, you know, Michael Brantley and some other guys who have profiles like this-ish, they're still good players. But I don't know if, you know, even the 29-year-old versions of them are necessarily getting 100 million bucks. And so, yeah, like we're talking about like a 5% swinging strike rate guy in Japan where the average fastball velocity is about 91 miles per hour uh, in 2022, which is climbing and climbing fast, actually. But uh, that is the big the big problem. And I'm curious if you were in a front office and the problem is solve for deciding which of these guys in Korea and Japan are actually going to translate here, especially the hitters, specifically the hitters, the Hassan Kims of the world. Yeah. How would you try to go about figuring that out? I mean, I find this problem to be like interesting and one that I'm not sure I have a great handle on. Like I do I do wonder about the the breaking down by fastball velocity just because I'm actually uh, I'm writing about this for probably next week at this point in regards to Jose Abreu and I was just looking at his performance, you know, if you want to sell the story of his decline, it's that he started hitting high velocity fastballs worse last year. And so I looked at people's numbers against high velocity fastballs and how they correlate year to year and the answer is not very well like it just it's just not like very useful to say how did this guy do against high velocity fastballs in year one if you want to guess how he will do in year two for a few different metrics and like you know it matters a lot about approach and where they were and you know what count they were in and all kinds of things like that just like how they were facing them were they looking for them and it's just really tough to to pin down things like that I'd kind of default to the the visual scouting version of it and the overall stat line. Like, I feel like one thing that I've been bad at sometimes in evaluating people is trying to break down like little bits of their performance by statistics and just getting into the small sample of it rather than looking at the, the whole stat line and then doing visual evaluation. And I, I think that's probably the right thing to do. You talking about the shape of his swing is the kind of thing that I'd care about. And I mean, it definitely worries me that... If you just throw him a low and away pitch, he's just not going to try to hit it for power. <laughs> that that sounds a little bit bad. I think this will be a very useful test. If you if you think about the kinds of guys who have come over here from both NPB and KBO, I mean, sometimes the guys who succeed best are the guys who hit for power there. You know, think uh, Jung Ho Gung when he first came over or Eric Thames when he came back. Those kinds of guys. Like, that seems very useful, you know? Right. And in a certain role... Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not like you can just do whatever you want. Well, so defense translates. I mean, Hassan Kim, like you were talking about, he has not hit like we expected, but he has fielded like we expected. Defense translates. Hitting-wise, I'm more willing to buy power, but like you said, it's kind of role-specific. And I'm definitely interested in guys who don't strike out a ton uh, there, because I feel like people with big strikeout problems don't often translate well. But I, right. I think this will be a really interesting like test case. I, I can't remember really the last player. I mean, let's not compare him to Ichiro. I don't think that's fair at all. Like, I don't remember a lot of just super, super contact heavy guys coming over from NPB uh, just to have a mental heuristic in my head for how they should translate. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, if I'm trying to remember some of the guys, you have your Tadaguchis, you have your Kazmatsuis. It is really the pitchers who have tended to translate the best and your Hideki Matsui types who have like overt power and, and Otani, obviously, who's probably grown into even more power since coming stateside just with yeah the way his body has changed and he's, you know, become a different physical entity than he was when he was with uh, 
Why am I forgetting which one it was? Uh, he was with the Ham it's Fighters. Hokkaido, uh, that's The right, Nippon yeah. Ham Fighters, rather. Yeah. I saw him play there. It was fun. That's cool. Yeah, I saw him I saw him pitch during the Fighters spring training in Peoria. Nice. Part of the reason that there was a lot of like Padres and, and Mariners buzz around him when he was signing was because like that's it's almost as if the Padres went out of their way to let them train there to help try to build a relationship with anyway, it was fascinating. They were playing a Korean team and anyway, the, the cell phone the cell phone video from that outing is online if folks want to find that. But uh that brings me to some of the other big time names who aren't coming over this offseason but who are poised to in future off seasons. And the most prominent among them is Munataka Murakami, who is coming off like a 10 war season in Japan. He hit like 60 home runs. He's only 22. He's been good over there since he was 18. There are some specific things about him that are yellow flaggy that would, you know, at the onset of this, when I started watching this guy, knowing what his numbers were, I was like, I would take this guy over Gunnar Henderson. I would take this guy over Corbin Carroll. Like, maybe this is the planet's best Major League Baseball prospect. Watching him play defense, digging into some of the end zone swing and miss stuff a little bit more, I backed off that, and I merely think he's like a top five global prospect. Oh, merely, yeah. He signed a contract a couple days ago for the next few seasons. He's locked in until through 2025, and then reports, I think it was J.P. Morosi who was first with it, are that he will be posted thereafter. So, like, this is a 2026 ETA guy. He's 22, going on 23 right now. You know, I'm ballparking him at 6'2", 250. He can't really play third base. But there's just ridiculous, ridiculous power. It's definitely, this is a name people need to know for a couple years from now. And then this is one where, you know, go to the the KBO leaderboard on our own site oh. and just look at what the hitters are doing. There's, this guy's been... Uh, on the board for a couple of years now. Jung-Hoo Lee with the Kiwoom Heroes in the KBO. This is, you know, this guy's tracking like the Korean Yuli Guriel, where this guy's dad was a big deal in Korea. Now his numbers are ridiculous already in his early 20s. There's, uh, you know, there's also some underlying stuff with this guy. The ground ball rate basically is so high that it's hard for me to, you know, gauge how much power there would be if this guy came over here. And there's always been a lot of power at the high end of the KBO, like player pool. Yeah. Guys like Daeho Lee and Byung-ho Park. Ripping, you know, 50-plus bombs some years, 40 bombs consistently. Eric Thames and Yamiko Navarro and stuff hitting 40-plus bombs over there. They've changed the strike zone in Korea twice in the last five years. They've basically expanded it. And then in 2022, they shifted to, a you know, a more individualized strike zone, which is kind of nuts that they didn't have already. But, like, rather than a strike zone that applied uniformly to everyone – they tailored it to the size of the hitter. And there's like uh, in the KBO post, I've got like a link to a, a photo of them training to do that. The umpires in Korea, which is a really cool picture. That's cool. But yeah, so the offense there has come down. I think it was something like 70 guys who slugged 400 or more uh, as recently as like 2017, I think it was. And then there were only like 30 guys who did it in 2022. And so the shape of the offense in Korea is uh, is changing. But Jung-Hoo Lee is the top of the heap over there. I think he's incredible. I think he's got one of the coolest looking swings on planet Earth. Just so neat and projectable still, even at his age. And those are those are the two big names that 
I think people should know about hitter wise. And there's there's plenty more on the board. You know, it makes me sad about KBO players. I'm very sad that I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but Yuji Yang never came over here. That's I, right. Yeah. I feel like he would be just one of my favorite players in baseball. I mean, he is, yep. but I'd never watch KBO. I'll be honest with you. The timing, the time zones are just bad. But I mean, he would he be the he's the best hitting international catcher in a very long time. And yeah, uh, it's just yeah, yeah. it's really fun to watch him hit. Yep. And I'm just looking at his stat page now and like marveling. He's 35 and he's had, you know, our WRC plus is not perfect there, but over the past five years, he's averaged like 150 as a catcher. It's just, it's ludicrous. And he, he plays a lot of games too. Yeah, he's awesome. NC Dino's catcher. He has been for like the last half decade or so. And yeah, more walks and strikeouts for the last half decade, even as he's entering his mid-30s. Yeah, quote unquote decline like years. He hit over. 325 last year. Yeah, I think he's not coming over. But man, I wish he was. The language barrier piece of it is so much more important for for catchers yeah because you have to communicate with your entire pitching staff all the time and so yeah if you're a 35 year old guy and you're you know not in position to like immerse yourself in the english language with you know in your teens when your brain is still very plastic like it would be so difficult for for a guy like that to come over and like learn english and spanish both yeah but i think he legitimately like can hit. I think he could hit in the majors. Yeah, I was watching him in 2020 when we were when I was watching a lot more KBO because there was no more no baseball here, and I was just like, "Wow, who is this guy?" And they said he played catcher, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that when the WBC stuff is gets going, that he will just be Korea's starting catcher. Yeah, and that some of the older guys over there who are still quite good will be a big part of of their team. Even Sung Bum Na, who we talked about a couple off seasons ago, he you know, he had a, a terrible knee injury, which sort of derailed his desire to come over, but like he got posted you know, at one point, right? Yes. He's one where the strikeout rates are scary enough that I you know, I don't think teams were willing to to buy in. But yeah, like I don't know, now that I'm thinking about more of the Japanese names that have come to, to mind, like Norioki is very contact forward and Yoshi Sutsugo was the opposite and like didn't pan out anyway. But um, there are lots of there are lots of examples. Yeah. Nori Aoki is a good one, and he he panned out okay, right? Like I think you'd take a Nori Aoki career if you're the uh, if you're the Red Sox, you'd basically break even on that deal. And Seems I would okay. I guess yeah, he like, he was a little better defensively, be, maybe. Aoki to me would be like the platonic ideal of like a, a light hitting forty five. Yeah, but guy. probably a better defender, I would guess than a. Yeah, yeah. I actually think. I had a better time talking with you evaluating Senga where I actually felt like I could do something <laughs> with watching him and feeling like I knew what was going on. I'm like not a huge Senga buyer. I'm, I'm fine. I think I actually think the league probably agrees with my evaluation. If you look at what pitchers are getting and what he got, yeah, it seems about right. Like I'd write him that contract if I were a team. I have no problem with it. Yeah, you have to – obviously there are components and in the, the whole Senga – signing reaction which i which i wrote justin Choi wrote the yoshida react which people should should go read in addition to my scouting report on him but yeah senga with pitching you can evaluate it more or less in a vacuum there's still some volatility because the physical baseball is different slightly in japan it's uh, smaller and has higher seams correct correct and you can be slightly more confident maybe in someone like senga translating because the things that he does well is arm strength and splitter he is not breaking ball centric in a way that makes you scared that 
the quality of the breaking ball. Right. Yeah. The gripping, the gripping, it is going to change, but you still have the workload piece of it. The frequency, the starting, like taking your turn in the rotation frequency part of it where, you know, Senga, Senga had some injury stuff in 2022. He's had injury stuff in the past. I go into that in the post. Yeah. And now he's got to pitch every five days, probably rather than once a week. Like he was going every seven or eight days and he had a couple IL stints essentially in, 2022 yeah. and now it's all right take take the ball every five days and so you just don't know if that guy is going to be sitting 96 touching 99 right if you're asking him to do to do that instead so um but yeah the breaking ball command component is the one we're on film using synergy sports you know we both were sitting there kind of like yeah this you know yeah, this, this guy's cutter location is not you know always good he doesn't necessarily have the pitch quality on that cutter or the curveball yeah, I mean, I'm not yeah. wildly impressed by his fastball either. It's fine, but I think people are thinking of him as like, you know, Jacob deGrom fastball or something. Like, I've seen right, right up towards like, touches 102, like right. huge he four does, he seamer. Has. And I'm sure he has, but like, what did the he shape average? Is like 95, 96, I think 95 and a half or something. Yeah. And like kind of, yeah. It's not like that, like really, really shallow approach angle, like exploding to the top of the zone deal. Something that uh, Lorela pointed out to me, actually, that I'm curious what you think about is he's not the biggest dude in the world. And like, he's not tiny, but for a power pitcher, he's not huge. Do you think that affects his ability to grip a bigger baseball to, to throw a splitter? I asked in the past, I've asked the driveline folks if hand size or finger length or anything like that shows any correlation with either your ability to throw hard or spin the baseball or kill spin on a splitter which is what i was jose Contreras. weirdly is is like the guy who made me think of that like i just remember watching him with his banana long fingers (laughs) like throwing his splitter but they say no uh at least in in the research that they've done good enough there's no correlation between like the size of your hands and fingers and, and any aspect of, of pitching that they've tried to measure, which was, you know, my hypothesis was that it would be, especially on the splitter grip guy. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to be. Right. Like, like it doesn't seem to have affected you Darvish at all, but he's a mountain of a man. So I feel like there's less, like he could probably throw a beach ball in a splitter grip. So I don't know how it could matter, but if they haven't found it, it's probably not there because I know that, some of the driveline guys are very into splitters and write about yep. them every chance they get. I doubt they've somehow missed this obvious thing. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about some of the Japanese splitters is that the shape of them, especially if you're watching them, and some of it is is like accentuated by the camera angle uh, from center field, but a lot of them look like sliders. Like they, when the the Japanese broadcasts are, the cameras that they use are unbelievable and so a lot of these highlight videos especially if you go searching youtube for these guys names with the japanese characters that make up their names you'll see the high speed footage from center field and you can see the grip of the baseball and their release in a like clear fine way and a lot of the splitters have like slider shape and the same type of spin axis as a slider they're just not spinning as much or at all like the splitters are coming out of their hand with like that bullet spin axis and when they when their release of that splitter is late enough that they're like cutting across their body a little bit you end up with more of a slider glove side the pitch yeah it has that downward glove side movement rather than something that's closer to like change up movement where it is down into the arm side yeah yeah and senga's one of those guys where his splitter often has that glove side 
movement to it. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's fascinating to see how some of these, you know, like there was a point where we were like bucketing splitters and change ups in the same column on the board. And then at some point, like what Devin Williams was doing, like arguably what Devin Williams is doing is so different than what like Cole Hamels was doing or whatever. Yeah, it's neither. You know, the guys with a straight change. Like it's not like, yeah, like really it's like we're talking about like three or four different types of pitches here rather than. I mean, his is a screwball. I, I know that like we don't call anything a screwball anymore, but it's a screwball. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. And that's that type of pitch seems to be becoming more popular now. I think there are some guys who have essentially been doing it, but they've been doing it with a more north-south axis, whereas like Williams, it's yeah. like side to side. And again, yeah, it's I'll very east-west. To the Fangraphs YouTube page, I just have high speed of Devin Williams from this season where you can see the release of that airbender. It's It would be amazing if the new pitch type became airbender, if they just decided to call it that. Yeah, there might be some copyright issues with that, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, who are they gonna? What, what are they gonna do? Like sue the broader baseball complex? Like I don't all know. of you baseball I'm, people, shut up! That's not a that's not an anime I've I've watched, but people seem to like it. People do seem to like it. I've never seen any of it. Some of my friends here decry the fact that it, that it hasn't been remastered more often into better animation quality with the same story. Anyway, that's getting very far afield. Sorry, it's fine. I. Yeah, like you're at risk of going off of. I have haven't seen Akira yet, and it's on Hulu, and the commercials on Hulu take me out of it. Anyway, we also had some big free agent signings and trades. Carlos Correa signed a huge deal with the Giants. Love it. The A's traded Sean Murphy to the Braves. Hate it for the A's. There's there's my hot take reactions. You want to go deeper into those too? I feel like those are the the interesting things that have happened recently that we can post on. So. There were, rumors around, there were rumors around the trade deadline as the A's were moving some of those guys that they wanted Esteri Ruiz as one of those potential trades. And when I heard that rumor in August, the, the way it was like put to me made me think like that either it was – I was getting an incomplete rumor <laughs> or that the A's overvalued Ruiz – who I think is like a fifth outfielder. Like he's fine. He can really run. He's become pretty good in center field, but you know, the improvement to his offensive output compared to like the dip he had after there was hype around him when the Padres acquired him from the, uh, the Royals many years ago. Like that's mm -hmm. the mirage in my opinion, like doing what, having seen this guy a ton, doing the film study again, you know, like this is a guy with a grooved pull-only swing. I, I see MLB pitchers being able to carve him up, you know, in a way that like makes him basically a fifth outfielder. But it seems like the A's actually value him. I, it's very interesting to me what would lead them to do this. I mean, he's got some explosive tools, obviously. But like just broadly speaking, how often is one team's evaluation of a, of a hitter? I feel like this happens more often with pitchers where teams are like, I could change this. I could change that. Like, we could talk with this guy and, like, teach him this pitch, and it would really, you know, bring the whole room together. But how often are teams this widely apart on hitters? That seems crazy to me. Yeah, I think that Oakland in general, it's been clear for a while. To me, I've written about it. And then David Forst, I was listening to an interview he did before this trade happened from from Winter Meetings. He basically admitted, admitted to it. Not that it's a bad thing, like, he's admitting to it. But he cops to, like... Their A's approach to the rebuild is speed, quantity, proximity. Those are the things that the A's seem 
to care about. And in almost every deal that they make, that is what they get back. They're just getting back like upper level, lots of guys, high volume, upper level pitchers. A lot of them aren't sexy. They're in their mid twenties. They just have been good double and triple A pitchers for a while. And they want to quickly have enough depth to like re-engage with the the wildcard picture as soon as possible. And they will not make a Franklin Barreto trade ever again where their eggs are in one basket and it's a basket with a terrible approach, like high risk, big tools. They ain't into that anymore. So this deal is a huge version of that. But yeah, like at some point, like the best piece moving other than Murphy is just a guy who you didn't get. (laughs) I was, I was talking to my my mother-in-law, who's a big Brewers fan. And I was like, you know, if the hater trade included William Contreras, I feel like everyone would have felt differently about it. And it it did. Just, it took a little bit. It actually worked out pretty well for them. Right. Yeah. And like, I like Kyle Muller. Like, Kyle Muller's a 45. That's an impact piece of your pitching staff. There's risk he's just a multi-inning reliever because he hasn't ever had good command until his AAA numbers in 2022. He was you know, running out of options, which is a thing the Braves really care about when it comes to their starting pitcher mix. And they, you know, he's on the outside looking in of their projected big league rotation. So they felt free to part with him. Freddie Tarnock, you know, more of a, a relief only guy for me. But again, like generally been starting for the Braves. He kind of plateaued. Roy Salinas, it's huge stuff. He's a three athlete with three command, but he's got a seven slider. Like, all these guys I could see being like on a pitching staff and relatively soon, Muller and Salinas might be like high leverage relievers, but you know, it's a poo-poo platter of guys basically rather than anyone who you can, you know, when the Rays trade a guy, right? they tend to get back at least one guy who you say, right. that guy has a chance to be as good as the guy who they just moved. Tends, they tend to. They try to at least, yeah. Right. It seems like a thing that they're trying to do when, you know, they're getting Junior Caminero. Like even when it's there's risk involved, they're getting Junior Caminero or they're getting Curtis Mead or whatever. Heriberto Hernandez. You know, they don't right, always Heriberto, work. Heriberto, sure. Right. And like Oslavis Basabe, you know, like that's the poo-poo platter deal they made, right? Like they got Basabe, they got Heriberto, they got the little first baseman whose height was – reported wrong by the Rangers. What's his name? I forget that he was traded for Cole Hamels from Chicago and then from, I forget his name, but like they got a bunch of guys back in that deal. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, like, so weird deal for the A's, good for Milwaukee for getting their, sticking their nose in this and and getting the second best player in it. It baffles me that the reported ask from the Cardinals for Murphy, this is, you know, pre-Wilson Contreras. So don't take it exactly as a gospel because things could have changed since then, but it was... Brendan Donovan and Lars Newtbar and Gordon Graceffo. And like like two of those guys are better than anyone the A's got. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> to me that's yeah, definitely like any of those any of those guys I think are better than Ruiz. It's I think that baffling to me. They're they're people who I talk to in front offices about Newtbar. And obviously Newtbar was one of those weird guys where like he came up in 21 and played enough that he graduated and so th- he's one of those guys who like I almost had to retcon him basically like as he was graduating, it was just like, well, this guy's at least a 45, Yeah. but there are some people who were just like, yeah, that guy should have been on your top 100 list. <laughs> I am, I'm doing the same thing, you know, very yeah. like ex post reasoning, but well, he also just got a lot better. 
he just have you seen the whole like driveline swing velocity improvement thing where he like he just swings five miles an hour harder now and like yes i don't know (laughs) he was he was a big deal in high school and when he initially went to usc and at least in my looks at him at usc he had gotten out of shape like it seemed like someone who hadn't been working hard to like be a pro athlete and now that's definitely changed like his body looks totally different than what i can remember from him at usc he's actually big dude i saw him in fall league when we were there last year and i was yeah. just like wow yeah so but yeah like anyway that group of that group of names that's an exciting group even if you're on the lower end of on Graceffo. yeah i mean i'm down on donovan too but he's i like he's donovan as a 45 very az player yeah, and some of some of what Donovan's bringing to the table is again in that David Forrest interview that he did on MLB Network, he's like, "Hey, we prioritize defensive flexibility." He was talking about signing Aledmus Diaz. Yeah. Because, you know, when a guy gets hurt or we don't know what the makeup of our roster is going to be because we are so cost restricted, right. you know, that defensive versatility is a big a big part of what we have to do and that totally makes sense and I think like Brendan Donovan yeah. He's not a great defensive second baseman or and is like barely, you know, he's an emergency shortstop in my opinion, but he still brings that stuff to the table. So yeah, like Played whatever a lot of right reported, field for the Cardinals for some reason. If that yeah. reported Cardinals package is true, then yeah, I would have rather had that than what's well, going on here. But yeah. again, like it just points to the gap between what I think about these players and what it seems like Oakland has to think about these guys to think that this deal was good is that they actually like Esturi Ruiz, whereas I, you know, do not. If you make him a top twenty-five prospect, then I think this deal makes sense. Yeah, like, well, definitely. If you just not. if you just like swap him out and swap in, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I know all the Cardinals prospects best, so Jordan Walker. Then it's like, yeah, okay. But I mean, I, uh, I don't, I don't think he is. Yeah, Murphy's damn good. He's yeah, so good. I I got some like Twitter flack and like etc. That people like. You had Sean Murphy pretty high on your top 50 trade value list. And I was like, yeah. Right. <laughs> I remain confident in that valuation of him. He was actually better than I thought he'd be in 2022. And I just don't think the A's did a very good job getting value from it. Who knows? Maybe I'll be wrong. I would rather have him than Wilson Contreras, like in a vacuum. Oh, my God. I, like, just I would too. Pick a guy. I, I think if people think that's close, they're wrong. I think Sean Murphy is significantly better. I think Real Muto, Will Smith, and Sean Murphy, I think that's the order. Yeah. Am I missing anybody? I don't think so. Those are the guys I want. I think that's it. Let's see. Like, is there Rushman, anyone? Rushman, Rushman, uh, Kirk, in that, it, Kirk and Rushman. Group. Those are like the uh, the other guys who are in the top tier. And I, I'd yeah. probably rather have Adley, particularly given his age. But I, I just think of him as like a pre-arb dude, and I guess Kirk too, kind of separate from these uh, these others. But those are those are the big five, and I think Contreras is a clear tier below. So good for Milwaukee for getting William Contreras, who was yeah. 12th among catchers in war last year at two and a half and was an all-star. And just for free. They got an all-star for free. Basically That's for nice. free. Yeah, they traded. Like when you look at what they got, what they traded to get, you know, Ruiz at the deadline, and then they've basically flipped that for a guy who's just an all-star, even if you don't think he's a catcher. That's pretty good. Yeah. Here's the thing that I would like to ask you about the A's before we uh, before we wrap this up. Like, why do we, why are we so certain that they're still a really good front office? And if they are, then what, then why is there, like, are we going to be in five years looking at them and being like, they were so far ahead of the curve on trade valuation? Like the Matt Olson trade, I hated for them too. And I, it's just strange to me that they, more than any other team that isn't like the Rockies are, you know, marching to the beat of their own drum 
And it's really interesting to me that kind of like Billy Bean's like goodwill, essentially, from a being really good and from building a really good front office for many years has carried over. I feel like they like they're starting to get something. Like, oh, really? But I don't know. Like, are we wrong? <laughs> it's the uh, the principal Skinner thing or whatever. Much like Colorado, they have a certain predicament that for sure impacts their behavior in a way that is hard for us to actually comprehend. There are definitely things that the A's do that I think work and are good and that they are severely hamstrung by their budgetary limitations imposed on them by ownership and that the, the stadium situation there is, is a mess that I cannot begin to understand how they, you know, must how it must just impact the tone of their day to day. Right. I also will cop to like people like David Forst, people like Billy Owens a lot. I love Billy Owens a lot. Some of what they do internationally from a like process, process oriented stuff on the international side, I tend mm-hmm. not to it is not my it would not be my style. They are like a team that leaves themselves a lot of late market money rather than do the icky thing where you know you are agreeing to a verbal deal with someone at 14 or 15 years old and end up with you know a couple guys who are 1 to 2 million dollar bonuses in that area like it's been a while since they've done that they tend to save money until later in the process mm-hmm. and then they end up with like cuban and asian players who hit the market later and their track record on that score is not great okay like lazarito isn't good and Norhe Ruiz isn't good. And uh, Robert Poisson, again, late market guy, not Cuban or anything like that, but came to back into the market late because the Braves deal with him was voided. Right. You know, it's not working out. And so, you know, some of their, and they're doing it again this year where their, their big guy is a Cuban pitcher who's 20, who's older. Uh, and maybe that'll work out. But like their track record, the team's track record with that part of segment of the market in general is mixed because you just sort of end up with what's left rather than with someone who you actually picked. Like you're more likely to just have money to to give someone. I mean, that's very in keeping with what they do overall. Like a lot of the time their budgetary restrictions necessitate that they just take what's left, what works out to, you know, like an NPV bargain as it were, rather than like targeting guys they want. That's how it works. Like if you're attempting to get the guys who found a market less than they expected and thus want to sign a a cheaper deal, well, then you kind of have to wait for them to not get the contracts they expected. Right. And then the last handful of drafts for them have not been... Kyler really. Right. Like the Kyler Murray thing really stings. And some some of the other guys just have not really worked out. But... The group that was responsible for those drafts, it's also the group who's responsible for like drafting Sean Murphy, like plucking Sean Murphy out of right state. You know, like that's this is that group. Like it's the same group of guys who was like Matt Chapman. And, you know, like this group has been there long enough that that's, yeah, these are their guys too. So the pitching development part of it too is not, is, is not working out. A lot of the big name guys, including lots of the guys who they've gotten back in some of these trades. Like Ryan Cusick came back from Atlanta in the uh, in the Olsen deal and stuff. Uh, Colin Palouse, who had like a velo spike after the pandemic shut down. He was like in the mid to upper 90s all of a sudden. He was 91, 93 in the fall league. A lot of these guys have, have had their velocity fall off. And I do wonder if A's pitching dev, 
Like just the, you want to throw down with some of the other guys. You want to throw down with Houston. You want to throw down with with the Dodgers and and stuff. Like you got to be able to crank out pitching from nowhere. Like from day three picks from small schools need to suddenly be throwing hard and be in the mix to be in your bullpen pretty soon for you to have the necessary pitching depth to compete over the course of a year. And the A's don't do that. The A's have to find those guys ready-made from these other orgs. They have to get J.P. Sears and these other, you know, like that's sort of what they have to do. They're not producing bulk in the pitching population from within. And I wonder if we're going to see some changes on that that score in the org relatively soon. Because at some point, someone has to be responsible for the fact that this isn't isn't going well. Yeah. I mean, it's really... (laughs) It's really not going well, and it's weird to me because a part of my brain is just like, yeah, sure, they're just, you know, they're six steps ahead, and I'm only thinking four steps ahead, so they're just two steps ahead of me, and in two years, the A's will be back to being good again, but I look at this, and I'm just like, I mean, will, will, will they? <laughs> like, Dan yeah, just did the like... A's zips, and it's like, it's not good. Yeah, it's it's rough, and like, you know... I see what they're doing on the margins and I like it. Like Yoel Pozo is a weird Astudio ish doesn't strike out, doesn't walk, plays a premium position, but not especially well Husky boy. You know, I like Yoel Pozo. He's got some issues. He was part of a hazing incident. That's probably going on close to 10 years ago. Now the DR that he was like suspended for, it was not, it was an ugly thing. Hopefully he's grown from that, but like he's a fun guy to sign to a minor league contract based on his skills. And so is Yanni Hernandez who they brought in and then DFA'd, you know, who's like a little, he's a little five, seven guy who makes a ton of contact and like plays his ass off. And I love, and I've loved watching him come through the minors and, you know, so the A's are still doing stuff. That's interesting to me, but yeah, like it, it's a rough look and Esther Ruiz, if I'm wrong, great. But like, to me, that's one where it's just like, I don't get it. I'm watching this guy on film and his swing is totally grooved. I know what his numbers look like. It's a PCL caricature at the very least, if not in total mirage, like he scares the crap out of me. And so yeah. I don't know why, you know, so that's a weird thing, but. Oh man, just looking at Zips here, top yeah. hitting comp for exterior Ruiz, Victor Robles. And I got tricked by Victor Robles. <laughs> I did too. I thought that guy was going to be a superstar and he can still do stuff. Like he still plays the crap out of center field and can really run and do other stuff. But yeah, there's just not enough impact contact for him to be anything other than like a certain role player, like a poor man's Kiermaier, basically. A less platoon-friendly Kiermaier is what Victor Robles is. And like that's a role, that's a big league guy who you want and who can go into the gap and make a huge play in October. Like absolutely Victor Robles can hose a guy at third base from the, you know, the warning track, like in a big spot, but he's not going to give you, you know, a 120 plus WRC plus over the course of a whole season while he's doing that. And yeah, so you have a, you have a Dansby Swanson and Carlos Rodon prediction before we, before we go. Yeah, I think I have a Swanson prediction. I think he's going to end up on the Cubs. Whoa. And I'm not really sure that it'll be a long deal, but uh, I feel like they've just been, they've just been enough heat around them and shortstops. You know, there's been a lot. Um, his wife, Mallory Pugh, plays for uh, the Chicago Red Stars. Okay. It's a NWSL team. So if he's taking a short-term deal, which it, it feels like he may, like it kind of seems like this is the year to take a short-term deal if you're the short last shortstop left standing. Uh, why would you not want to go play where your wife works? That that seems nice. I, I think that there's just like the Cubs want to spend some money. It seems like to like not a, at the right time. They should have been doing this a few years ago when they could have supplemented a pretty good core. 
and gotten more you know kind of leverage out of it but it seems like they want to he seems like he'd kind of make sense there i came into the offseason thinking i did not like dancy swanson's profile and i have the pre-write assigned for him and so i've been doing some research on him and i think i like him more than i thought he's just got more power than i ever give him credit for because i watch him and i go nah but yeah he can hit a little he can kind of make up the strikeouts you don't think atlanta's done no i think that some information I've become like that I've been privy to lately to me indicates they might have two huge transactions in them still this off season. Well, and I, I just don't sense. I yeah, I think that they're still poised to make some sort of trade, like a blockbustery they send a big time guy and get back a big time guy type trade. Interesting. Yes. I think that they are still in position to do a thing like that. And then I think if they do that, then Swanson is back in in play for them financially. That makes sense. I like Von Grissom, but I don't know if I everyday shortstop like Von Grissom. I do not everyday shortstop like Von Grissom. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't even need to do the qualifier there. I, I don't think he's an everyday shortstop. I went into this offseason thinking the Braves were just going to retain Swanson. Like, just kind of made sense to me. I'm surprised that they haven't yet, which is what makes me think maybe he's just going to do the short-term thing. And I don't love... Grissom and Orlando Arcia, like once you start to see who they have to mix and match there, it's like, yeah, yeah. But I feel like some of the body language things, and this is again, like this is tinfoil hat Eric, who's just pasted to the game and you know the way people are behaving, and I just don't know how Acuna fits there from a cultural standpoint anymore, like a clubhouse standpoint, and I wonder if that's. The other shoe that might drop in Atlanta, I think, is them moving him in a huge one. Yeah, yeah that, that would be a big one. Yeah. I have heard, you know, uninformed smoke to that effect. Who knows? But that would be interesting. I would trade for yeah. Acuna if I were a team. I am scared of how he returned from the knee injury and kind of what his body looks like. And just, I would be, I could see if you're, if you're like, you know, in the position that the Red Sox for office found themselves in and you're like, we got to trade Mookie Betts. What do we do? Getting someone back like that makes it easier, but I don't know that there's, you know. (laughs) They got a lot less than Acuna back for Mookie Betts, though. They would have just whacked the accept button if they could get 2022 Acuna back for Mookie. crazy how these guys, how it happens, like, how you're like, yeah, like, here's Fernando Tatis and he's godlike and then he's a dumb young person. And yeah. you miss, you know, a huge chunk of time. And then here's Acuna and it's like, ah, does this guy like, you know, is this guy's motor what you want it to be? I mean, I, certainly at the price that you're paying for him, it is whatever you get is probably fine. But right. uh, but yeah, you're like, you know, there's just suddenly there's stuff in Cody Bellinger and Juan Soto had the season he did. And it's just weird stuff that happens with these guys. Wander Franco gets hurt. Perhaps no players are good. Maybe every baseball player is bad. So, yeah, they all suck. But uh, all right. Well, good talking to you. Thanks to everyone for listening and for Dylan Higgins for producing, for Ben Clemens. And editing. And editing. Yeah, I've uh, I've been Eric Long and Hagen. Talk to you guys again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Jerry DePoto for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, or recommend the pod to a friend or two of yours. It would truly help us out. After you've done that and perused the Fangraphs.com shop, don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. This is the best way to keep up on all the cool stuff we have going on free to your inbox. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you next time.